Welcome to the Life Education Parent Podcast. Life Education is Australia's largest children's health promotion charity, empowering kids to make safe and healthy choices. In this podcast, we speak to experts about the big issues facing parents today, seeking answers and advice to help you deal with some of the challenges of parenting in the 21st century. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Challoner. Well, the school year is underway, much to the relief of many parents around the country. And after such a big year in 2020, with months of homeschooling and isolation, we've probably all seen a little more of our children than usual. And let's be honest, most of us are pretty happy about the return to the normal school term. Let's hope this year progresses more smoothly, but ensuring a successful year at school takes a little bit of parenting planning and strategy. Well, today it's my pleasure to welcome back special guest Dr Judith Locke, clinical psychologist, former teacher and school counsellor and workplace trainer. You might have heard Judith's name via her popular parenting column in News Corp papers, and she's also the author of two books, The Bonsai Child and The Bonsai Student. Hi, Judith. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Tracy. Well, Judith, in The Bonsai Student, you write that parenting has changed radically in the past 50 years. I know that once upon a time, it was about being firm but fair. Now we're in an age of helicopter parenting or bonsai parenting. I wanted to start by asking you, why have parenting styles changed so much and what does that mean for kids? It's an interesting area because in some ways it's been the perfect storm of creating a sort of different type of parenting. And while that's been of great benefit, I I do think uh, parents are much more concerned about their child's well-being and their moods and their sort of getting through things okay and things like that. But in some ways, um, the sort of stuff that started in about the 1970s and the kind of what is loosely described as the California feel-good movement and a real sort of emphasis on self-esteem in children. They did some research where they looked at the link between self-esteem and a child doing well in life. And um, and so a lot of people sort of concluded that self-esteem was the big sort of thing that children needed to have, very, very good self-esteem. And unfortunately, because self-esteem is a really true definition of it, it's a very slow-evolving sort of process many parents started to do this sort of shortcut to self-esteem. And the easiest way to make somebody feel good about themselves right now is to praise them, um, to give them affection or to enable them to win in an event. And the thing thing is, is while that's with good intentions, shortcuts to self-esteem only have short impacts. So if a child does feel good just because they're praised in the moment, well, that's only going to last as long as the praise sort of rings in their ears and then they're going to need a bit more praise to keep feeling good. Whereas the better way to sort of build it is by them slowly realising they can cope, that coming from a warm environment, but slowly realising they can cope with the ups and downs, not only being used to happiness and success all the time, but having other experiences, learning they can cope and then they're not fearful of the future if they don't win or if they're, you know, not, um, you know, tomorrow they might sort of wake up a bit sad. But believing that they can cope with that is much more uh, a way to build their self-esteem. And for those parents who are consistently making their child, giving them good feelings, they're not 
really preparing them for the future. Yeah, disappointment is not the end of the world. Judith, you've often emphasised in your talks and your writing and so on that if we don't want to create a bonsai child, one that requires perfect conditions in order to thrive, we really need to let kids embrace challenges and learn how to cope themselves. What would you say are the five essential skills for life, the five R's that we should be aiming to develop in our children? So they are resilient, the ability to face challenge, and the only reason uh, you develop that is by actually facing uh, challenges, even if it's minor challenge, like getting the cookie without the Smarties colour that you wanted, you know, and sort of <laughs> learning to cope with that to the point of learning to cope when you don't get on the A-team of netball and things like that. So it's resilient. The second one is uh, self-regulation. Self-regulation is the ability to stop current pleasure for future gain. So for an adult, it's getting ready the night before work so that you're not running around in a mad rush the next morning and you actually go uh, better or saving money for a house deposit. And in children, it's kind of doing your homework, even though you want to just play video games so that you don't get in trouble at school tomorrow or that you actually do what you need to do to sort of understand the topics. Yes. Uh, the third one is resourcefulness and it's the, um, it's the ability to kind of cope with sudden change and, and have the skills to kind of pivot and there's that word that we've said very much of but pivot in the moment and kind of make a decision to sort of that um, enables you to stay in the current circumstances. So a resourcefulness might be knowing what to do if you forget your lunch for school that day and sort of being able to speak to a teacher or go to the canteen or something like that. The fourth one is actually um, respect and it's the respect for authority, of course, and sort of uh, listening to what they tell you to do and uh, particularly adults who usually know better um, and know you can't eat that ice cream for dinner and things like that. But it's even beyond that. It's actually respect for peers and respect for the rights of others, say, to win the game or other to sort of uh, speak in a conversation a little bit so then you speak a little bit. Um, and the last one is responsibility. Responsibility is um, the ability to um, not only um, have respect for others but work, do your best to actually improve the situation for others from minor things like standing up on the bus to let an older person or a pregnant a lady sit down or doing chores around the house. And those are things that are really a recipe for success for all of us, adults as well as children. Absolutely. It actually drives me crazy when parents who have got all of this success, primarily because of their resilience and their self-regulation, so working really hard to establish their business or to get that degree or to have a successful, loving relationship, hand everything to their child without their child working for it. And so they're not developing the very skills in their child that brought them success. So it, it sort of, it's very frustrating. Sometimes an ideal childhood isn't preparing their child. You know, I know you'd love to have got a brand new car when you turned 18, but possibly getting that old, old, old Datsun was actually what made you hungry to work hard to get a better car in the future. So we don't know what we do when we just give everything to them. No, hard work and effort equals reward. Mm. Judith, if, if there's one word that sums up the school experience for most of us, it's routine and establishing good routines. And let's face it, there are good days and bad. Morning routines are probably the hardest for most parents. What are the top three things that you would recommend parents try to ease some of the typical before school hurdles that can lead to tears and meltdowns? Mm. 
I, I think it's really important. The first one would be sticking to routine, making sure that routine never changes and then it's always the same, that they get up, that they have their breakfast, that they put their uniform on. It just it just is absolutely unchanging. So if that's unchanging, then there's less chance for the child to kind of object to something. Um, and for a lot of kids, they love routine. They feel safer in routine. The second one would be to get them to do more for themselves. I think every single school year, a parent should be finding things that their child now can do for themselves, be it getting dressed, be it making their breakfast, be it sort of even washing their uniforms and things like that. So so getting them to do more and more for themselves as they become older. But the other thing that's really problematic for a lot of parents out there who have to drive their child to school on the way themselves to work or their Pilates class or whatever it is, is that it's actually in the parent's best interest to get their child ready to, you know, to get in the car on time so the parent's not late. But what I encourage in the book parents to do is actually turn that around and make it in the child's best interest to be ready on time. And that's either kind of not giving them a lift to the bus station if they're old enough and can walk, but you're doing them a favour. So if they're not ready at the car by a certain time, well, you're, you're just not driving and they have to walk to the bus station or whatever it is, or they actually get the consequence at school. So if you do drive them late, you allow them to have the experience. Now, it's a bit more complex for that than that, particularly for parents that have to drive their child the whole way to school. And I sort of go through different scenarios as to how to do it, but it's got to be in your child's best interest because you know they shouldn't feel like they're doing you a favour by getting ready for school. No, they've got to be self-motivated. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thousands of kids went back to school just recently. Um, how would you recommend managing a child who's particularly anxious about going to school and even once the term is underway still may be struggling with the concept that school is non-negotiable until at least year 10 or 13 years if we go to year 12. How can parents soothe anxiety about having to go to school? Well, uh, uh, the big question I'd always ask is, what is the child's anxiety? What is, what are they actually worried about at school? And, um, and one of the big things is for children, particularly children who've been very well catered to in the home and kind of do kind of get their way a little bit more, school is a little bit more challenging for them because they have to sort of march to the beat of a different drum and not necessarily uh, dictate the sort of terms as much. And for those children, I certainly don't think schools need to kind of cater to them more. Much more, I actually think, uh, the child needs to get used to not um, being in charge of the routines, um, get the parents to embrace a little bit um, more unpredictability, but also the parents being a bit more in charge. For children who've got um, pervasive developmental disorders like autism, that's slightly different. You do need to give them much more predictable. For, but for the majority, they they will be able to cope with change if you get them a little bit more experience with change. The other thing I think really important is never to treat school as being a negotiable thing. We're seeing a lot of school refusal now in children and particularly after uh, the pandemic and the lockdowns and things like that. And I think when they start to think it's optional and you allow them to stay home for any reason, just because they're tired or something like that, you don't really have a leg to stand on when they want to stay home and you say no because in some ways you've dropped your standards previous to that. So I think making it non-negotiable that it's 
uh, it's the law that they have to go to school and not even entering into discussions or apologising for to them for having to go to school. It's it's just what they have to do. Yeah, that's right. Well, one yeah. of the one of the questions you're most often asked when you present to schools is how to deal with a child who's clinging to mum or dad in the car at school drop off and doesn't want to get out and go into school. A lot of that would come from fear and anxiety. How can parents minimise a situation like that? Well. I mean, I suppose it just depends too on on what their fear is as to what sort of not enabling them to go in. And I think, I think it, depending on the situation, I mean, sometimes it is good go, to go and speak to a professional. It's always better that the parent speaks to the professional about sort of like, here's what's happening. So the professional gives the parent ways to manage the situation in a better way and ways to respond to their child when they're very hesitant to go in and ways to sort of talk it through um, with them so that they're, they're, they feel sort of more confident to walk in. I'm really against parents sort of, oh, well, I'll walk you straight to the classroom and things like that. It's not a great idea for you to insert yourself too much into that experience because then they're going to be clinging to that. So even if you do that at first, you have to have an exit sort of plan for all of that, of not doing it. But I also think that sometimes, and daycare uh, providers can certainly attest to this, Often it's a performance and, you know, when you drop them off at daycare and they're, oh, you know, I can't live without you and things <laughs> like that. And it is honestly a performance that goes from 8.20 to 8.25. You know, as soon as you walk out of the room, they're like, right, what's next? You Half know, an hour, and, and they're consistently doing it because in some ways, um, if you're kind of, if they're like, I'm going to miss you and you come back with great emotion, oh, I'm going to miss you too. It just becomes this sort of performance piece. So I think you have to be, again, be a little bit matter of fact. You know that they're in no harm. You know that, you know, being them doing it's going to be okay and there's nothing wrong, bad that's going to happen to them. So I think often you let them know how safe the environment is and you let them know your comfort at separation, which makes them more comfortable. But any bigger issues, definitely consult a professional. And in your experience, does that reluctance to go to school usually settle down after a couple of months? Like by term two, they're usually okay? They usually are, but it's funny. Every now and then little things will happen that will actually bring that on again, like the the birth of a new sibling or something like that might have them regress a little bit or after maybe have been ill for a week and then it sort of might flare up again. Mm -hmm. So generally it does drop down, but life circumstances can sometimes... And look, one thing that's really... A child's well-being is very much dictated by the parent's well-being. So if you're in a stressful period at work or something like that, they might become a little bit clingier because they're very much seeing that stress in you and inadvertently you're signalling to them that there's danger so they they might get a little bit worried mm. about things. Upsets the balance a bit. Even though you were a teacher before you became a psychologist, it must be interesting having that insight into both worlds. Mm -hmm. You always remind parents that doing well at school is certainly not everything. It's important to encourage kids but too much pressure to achieve can be damaging, can't it? Yes and it's interesting because I talk very much in the book about the damage of extreme praise 
you know, I, I know that parents think that this extreme praise is going to make a child more confident. But if it's before their first day of school or before they're about to do the NAPLAN um, exams or something like that, and you're praising them in a manner you think you're building their confidence, but you're saying to them things like, it's going to be okay, you're going to do really well, you're going to have heaps of friends, you know, you're, you're going to sit down and the questions are going to be easy. You're actually predicting an outcome that you're not actually sure is going to happen. So you're giving them confidence but it's a false sort of confidence. So um, so I think it's really important to sort of encourage them, but not so much with sort of extreme praise. And I think it's really important too to sort of see that, think that you are developing much more um, in their schooling than just results. Um, and you can't, if it doesn't guarantee results, uh, parents can't guarantee results, even ability in children doesn't necessarily guarantee results. It's a, it's a combination of factors and some kids over the years, and I found this particularly when I was teaching, sometimes they're doing a little worse than the class average, then they're doing a little bit better, that, you know, or they're doing much better and then the rest of their classmates catch up with them and things like that. So I wouldn't put too much store in results as much as I put into the effort category in the report card and their approach to learning and their motivation and things like that. Um, and, you know, it's certainly, um, you're getting more out of schooling than results. And, you know, some of the saddest cases I saw were parents who, by virtue of paying for education, thought that that would guarantee results. And for a child who's a solid B, to be told that anything but an A is not good enough is really damaging on their self-esteem and their sense of being good enough. Absolutely. You tell that story in the book, don't you, about a parent-teacher interview situation where a father was sort of saying to you, well, you know, why, why is she not getting an A and what am I getting for my money, even though the student was doing really very well? Yeah, and look very well for their ability too. Teachers are quite good at picking up ability. We don't talk about it as much because, um, you know, unless you're an educational psychologist that has done a formal sort of testing, but you are picking up what they're picking up in class. So you know when they're working to the best of their ability. And what was devastating about that um, that particular teacher interview is that um, that they would not see that any, you know, the, the other good qualities in their child, they were only focused on results. And, and I, you know, I think, you know, the happiest people in Australia aren't necessarily the smartest ones, you know, or the ones that got the best ATAR scores. There's so much else to satisfaction and happiness than just school results. And you forget it five minutes after you've left school, really. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Anybody who's still talking about their ATAR score is truly sad. Like, <laughs> was TE when later. I was at school. That's how old I am. Yes. <laughs> no, that's how old I am too. <laughs> In recent years, we, we have been hearing a lot about the pressure and the scrutiny and the expectation that teachers are under. I just take my hat off to teachers. I know that you even treat teachers nowadays for anxiety because of some of these pressures. How can parents work successfully with educators to support the work they're doing, but not overstep the mark? And I guess avoid becoming one of those dreaded helicopter parents. There is a value to a firmness in a teacher, and I think it's important for parents to accept that as being important for the long-term growth of a child. The other thing, too, I think it's really important is to never underestimate a 
teacher's desire for long-term benefit on a student and it's much easier as a teacher to give a consequence to a child who hasn't done their homework than it would be to give it to your child if they were in your class. So that kind of objectivity of teachers is incredibly beneficial and so it's, it's really important to trust that teachers are always doing the best thing for your child in the long term. Um, of course, there will be incidents where you have to sort of speak to teachers, but I think coming from a position of trust um, at first and just, you know, keeping your eye on things is much better than looking to evaluate the teacher on a daily basis because I, I don't, I think that's a disaster. Mm. Yeah, let's talk about homework and assignments because that can be uh, a big source of stress in many homes. I nicknamed one of my children last minute Larry because he was always the one that started his assignment the night before. Uh, situations like that do have a way of becoming everyone's problem. How can we make children more organised? Well, I think the big thing for primary school is routines over reminders. So again, as I spoke about with the morning routine, the afternoon routine has to have a routine in that they come home, have a snack, start their homework, and it's only after their homework that they can watch TV or play games. So that becomes incredibly important, routine, routine. Um, and not reminders, get your homework done. You haven't done your homework. How many times do you have to tell you to do your homework? That sort of thing should go out. So really, it's in their best interest to do their homework, to be able to do the fun stuff they want to do, even if it's playing outside or something like that. But there's an age that they get to, and I think parents should not necessarily be reminding their child of their homework, particularly in the upper primary years and definitely in their high school years, because the schools usually give a very good consequence if the child doesn't do their homework. Now, they won't be nabbed every time, but they'll be nabbed every now and then. And it's kind of like speeding fines, you know, just the threat of getting a detention tomorrow for not doing your homework is usually enough to, you know, deter you from actually doing the wrong thing. Um, but I really, the, the worst thing I find, and because schools have a kind of no surprises policy now, where they deliberately, like if a child's not doing their homework, often they speak to the parent first before they speak to the child. And they'll ring up the parent and say, look, you know, you're Larry's not doing his homework and the parent then, oh, I've got to remind him more and yeah, how dare you? you, you better do your homework and things like that, yeah. which is not right. I actually suggest to parents what they need to do is actually say to the school, thanks very much. Thanks very much for letting me know that. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I give you full permission to do as you see fit. Yes. So, you know, if you Take want to give them attention, yeah. go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. You have to learn the so consequences. I just think, let them, but the other thing too is don't let the child, ah, Assignment you tomorrow. Don't let that impact on the family. Judith, um, as a society, we were talking about this before, we, we can get so hung up on academic and sporting results. I mean, the media makes such a hoo-ha over the ATAR scores every year, and they always seem to focus on the kids who get the highest marks and go to the best schools. Um, I mean, it's, it's nice to encourage kids to strive for excellence, but as we've said, there's way more to a successful school life than being a straight-A student or the track star. What are some of the other measures of success that we should be applying? Mm. Well, the key elements, I believe, in terms of success are three things. And the first thing 
that a child will only be successful if they have these three things. So the first one, and what I think is probably the most important, is motivation. So you need to have a child motivated to do well at school. And the trouble is, is if the parent is more motivated than the child, the child usually is less motivated because a parent's eagerness for a child to do well probably will dominate the child to a point that a child gets a bit shruggy about it all. Well, you know, in the same way that if you are more motivated for your partner to take out the garbage, you'll be reminding them all the time and it'll start to become your thing rather than their thing. Um, the second thing that's really important is the effort that they're putting in and you've got to make sure that that effort is warranted because a lot of them put extreme effort into things but it's into the wrong thing. So it's putting all their effort into their title page when their title page is not even marked. You know, it's it's kind of like one point out of 20. Mm-hmm. So um, you've got to make sure and you've also got to make sure their effort is genuine and it's not half homework, half checking social media or half, you know, or doing silly things like just downloading articles but not actually reading them. Yes. And the third thing is actually um, ability. And look, I know that parents often say that ability is the key thing and so if they have got ability, then they should do well at school and that's kind of all that is warranted. Whereas I would argue often a child who has got great ability but very low motivation even if you push, push, push them in the early days to get their homework done and do everything, eventually when you stop pushing, they're going to you know, drop out, drop out of uni, you know, not, not have that sort of hunger and motivation to sort of do well. So I think you've got to allow them to accept the consequences of their motivation and effort. Um, to actually kick in their motivation and, you know, dignity alone sometimes has them um, trying harder because they don't want to get a C again or they don't want to not get the award. The other thing, because you mention awards, that's really important to mention too, is so many parents are caught up on the idea that their child doesn't get any awards, mm. you know, and they're sort of just moseying along school and they're not getting any awards and they're kind of, I've even heard of parents pulling their child out of like a large school to go into a smaller school where they get more awards. Oh, well, really? look, to a certain degree, I think, I think, you know, the size of the pond will impact, you know, the amount of awards your child gets, you know, it will. And I do think schools have probably increased their awards over their years to appease you know, parents and children who are looking for awards. But the thing is, is like, you know, when was the last time any of us won an award in our work life? Like, when was the last time, you know, our manager came over to us and said, my goodness, you were amazing today. Do you know, I can't (laughs) wait to see your performance tomorrow. (laughs) These things are not happening regularly. And I noticed that a lot of my students who are my university students who are very used to getting that reward, Mm. they... Validation. Lack motivation all mm. the time. They lack, the, you know, they're expecting you to tell them nice things all the time, but nice things won't change their performance. It's an acknowledgement, but it won't change. If they're making a mistake, there is no way you can phrase it in a way that's praising. You've got to actually say, no, that wasn't correct. You've got to give them constructive criticism. And I think, um, I think for, you know, a child just moseying along, that's fine. I don't see there's anything wrong with that. You know, I think that's okay because that's kind of preparing them for life. I think it's actually problematic if you've just won awards all the way through school and real life hits you. Like, how is that? That's going to be hard. Like, it's really going to be difficult for them. So I, I think kind of getting them used to that's okay. 
not the end of the world. And there are plenty of kids who didn't win awards at school and maybe didn't get the best ATAR, but who go on to do amazing things with their life. Oh, absolutely. One of the most hopeless students I ever had, and I won't say where, is now, you know, very well known in Australia for his particular skill. And every time I look at him, I think, you know, I used to look at you in classroom thinking, you are going nowhere, you know, (laughs) and yet you ended up somewhere. So... You never know. The superstars don't end up superstars. The non-superstars sometimes do. If anything, it actually takes the pressure off them. Yeah, that's right. It all evens out in the end, doesn't it? Um, Judith, let's just talk briefly about friendships because friendships are really one of the keys to kids enjoying school, having great groups of friends. We know, though, that one in four children experiences bullying at some time. How do parents identify, firstly, if it is bullying and, if it is, determine the best way to deal with it? Mm. So bullying has to, for it to be considered bullying, it has to so be made up of three things. It has to be deliberate. We have to know that the child, the other child intended to have a negative impact on the person. There has to be a power imbalance. So it's either like, say, for example, a group of um, very popular kids picking on a child that doesn't have as much kind of um, high popularity as they do. But the other thing is it has to be repeated over and over. So many years ago, I remember a, a parent, actually a teacher telling me the story that a parent had said that their child was bullied yesterday because one child told them that they didn't run as fast as they did. Mm. And the parent was saying, saying, this is cruel, whereas I would argue, well, it, it's kind of a statement of fact if that's the case. But it, they're not deliberately making them feel bad. There's, you know, it's not repeated. It's just something that's said. And I would argue that for situations like that, children need to learn to cope when they do get the truth. You know, yes, yeah. you know. Yeah, a one-off incident I mean, like, is a bit different yeah, to sustain a one-off incident. But if it's regular, regular, if the child is very upset and cannot sort of cope with it, then definitely. I mean, I would prefer older children to speak themselves to someone at the school, be it a teacher or, you know, be it a school counsellor or something to get some advice on it. But for younger children, you know, and parents can coach them how to have that conversation. But I do think it is important to address it, address it early and give them techniques to either directly address it or to kind of cope with it. There's also a challenge to you've just got to make sure your child is trying to be friends with the right group. And what I find often is that very shy kids go for the kind of most popular kid in the class to be mm-hmm. their friend. Do you know, so they, yeah. it's almost like, okay, if I ever entered the dating game again, I'd want to date George Clooney. You know, that's <laughs> my goal. You know? um, and, and so you go too high, you think you're going to get so many gold points out of it. And the trouble is for kids to want to be friends in with the really popular kids, that is a tough crowd. Mm. And if they don't get the message, you know, those tough, those, they're, they're more mature, they're probably, you know, they're all of that Very sort of confident. thing, they're a little bit older. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is they're trying to get into their group. That group is going, kind of don't play with us because you're not, like, and that child is really taking it as rejection. Yes. But that they're playing with fire with that because they're a tough crowd, you know. And, you know, my fear every night is, who's George meeting now? Do you know, like what, you know, like what, you know, like that sort of thing would be so extreme, do you know, that it wouldn't promote well-being. So I'm, I'm also very much about 
deliberately choosing good people to be friends with, you know, nice people and parents talking to kids about good choices in friendships and friends who have your back and not that sort of, because so many kids are involved with sort of drama, drama, drama all the time and I'm your best friend now and now I'm not your friend and now I am your friend and things like that. And your friend, your child can get very caught up in that. So it's good for parents to kind of educate kids on what a good friendship is. It's good for kids to have a a variety of friends. And you also talk Mm. about how parents shouldn't get too hung up about their child having their best friend in their class year after year Mm. because those friendships can change and it's good to meet new people and and, Mm. and build new relationships. Well, and as many um, listeners will know, you, you go on a through Europe with your husband or your best friend, you actually don't meet as many other people, you know. So you do need to be open to meeting other kids in the class and forming other friendships and that's because you're not going to be with your best friend for the rest of your life and it's just important for you to learn those social skills about, you know, being able to cope without them by your side all the time. Yeah, well, in life we have to work with lots of different personalities, don't we, as, as we go through life's journey. Judith, if parents could do just one thing to ensure that their child has a successful school journey, the key message that comes out of your book is that we need to allow kids, for the most part, to find their way without stepping in to solve every problem for them. So let them spread their wings a bit. Mm. What advice would you give to parents, maybe those that are just starting Mm. the school journey with some little people? uh, What advice would you have for them? Mm. I think it's really important to remember that schools just as an institution and the things that occur with them, they naturally build essential skills in children, such as resilience and self-regulation. But they only build those skills if a parent allows them to experience normal school life, such as attending and participating in every, you know, like swimming carnival and things like that, or experiencing, allow a parent allows them to experience the ups and downs and kind of helps them cope with not getting class captain or not getting on the maths team or something like that, Um, you know, and winning at some things, losing at others, whatever, okay, and they're also experiencing the consequences of their choices. And the big thing, and of course, you know, I'm biased, but I see the, the one of the main benefits of the book is really clearly laying out for parents what they should be doing, you know, in terms of preparing a child for school and preparing at the right environment for them to be successful at school, but also really details what they can leave to the teacher that they don't need to worry about. They just leave, leave that in the teacher's court, leave that in the school's court, but also what they can leave to their child. Okay, this is what you can do. This is what you're doing. I'm not, you know, reminding you about your homework. You're in year nine. You know, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I think that's really important. The big thing is parent involvement is not good or bad with a child's schooling. You know, it's much more kind of complex than that. But what I have aimed to do in the school is really, in the book, sorry, is explain to parents what is helpful involvement and what is not, you know, what is unhelpful involvement. And really seeing school as not just school, but school school that's setting them up for the rest of their life and making sure that school experience truly sets them up for the years beyond school because face it they're facing a lot more years beyond school than actually school. So by all means be supportive but don't feel you have to smooth out every single bump otherwise you end up with a bonsai child. 
<laughs> well, yeah, and also, like the, the, years ago, I treated the parent of a 45-year-old man who was still having parenting problems with their 45-year-old son. You don't want to be reading the bonsai 45-year-old child. Well, she needed your book. <laughs> <laughs> so you really do. You're setting up the future. You're setting up everything here. And, I, yeah, I really think just making them – capable and resilient and things like that, most important thing. That's the name of the game. Judith, great to have you on the Life Education Podcast again. You get such amazing feedback, I know, from schools all over Australia. So thanks for helping our parent audience today with such great advice to help kids enjoy the school year. Thanks, Tracy. My pleasure. Lovely to chat to you. I've been talking with clinical psychologist, researcher and former teacher, Dr Judith Locke. If you'd like more info on some of the parenting strategies we discussed today, you can find links to Judith's great new book, The Bonsai Student, as well as our blog content on the Life Education website. Hope that your family's 2021 school journey is off to a smooth start. To hear our other podcasts, go to the Life Education website or you can find us on your favourite podcast platforms. I'm Tracy Challoner. Until next time, thanks for joining us.